Long ago, before children were required to be in car seats until they were at the age of 16, a father drove his children down the road when, unbelievably, some bickering broke out between his sons. And so, he did what fathers do in that particular situation. He raised his gaze into the rearview mirror, furrowed his brow, and said, don't make me come back there. Still, the bickering continued and eventually exhausted his patience. Don't make me pull this car over, he shouted. Silence. Looks in the rearview mirror once more. And there he discovers that one of the boys has actually stood up during the kerfuffle. And so he says to him, son, sit down. The son would not move. So sit down now. Perhaps if he had been the boy's mother, he would have said something like, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. He said whatever a father's equivalent would be. And so the boy sat. Moments passed. Minutes. And then, all of a sudden, the, boy, the boy's voice interrupted the quiet. Dad, I want you to know that while I'm sitting on the outside, on the inside, I'm standing. We've all been like this little boy at some point in our lives, haven't we? For some reason, none of us really likes to be corrected, do we? When you think about it, that's, that's actually quite foolish. If you're doing something wrong, wouldn't you want to know how to do it right? And if you see someone doing something wrong, wouldn't you want to help them to get it right? Proverbs 12.1 tells us, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But one who hates correction is stupid. Or Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of the enemy. Correction is a good thing. It is good to both give and receive correction. And yet often we are averse to both because it can be awkward sometimes to, to correct our friends. And of course, we can be easily offended when we are receiving correction. But at the end of the day, the Bible views correction as good, as the way of wisdom. And it's this truth that is Paul's presupposition when he pens verses 7 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 5 which is where we will settle down this morning. And he's going to have a main idea of this. He's going to exhort, command the Ephesians and us to walk as children of the light. He's going to give us two ways to do that. By bearing the fruit of the light and exposing the works of darkness. By bearing the fruit of the light and correcting sin. Let's pray and we'll get started together this morning. 
Father, we thank you for this wonderful occasion that you give to us each week. At the beginning of the week, we can remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross as a substitute for the sins of all who will believe in him, didn't stay dead, but rose again. And on this Sunday, this beginning of a new week, we celebrate once more the newness of life that we have in him. We celebrate the wonderful truth that he is risen from the dead. And so too, we who have faith in him shall rise. And so we ask God as we come to your word that you would remind us of this wonderful truth, that there's nothing we could do to earn our salvation, no good work, no right thought, that it's entirely your work, your gift to those you have called to yourself. Pray that you would remind us of that and cause us to give you praise and to look for ways that we might better obey your word. Not because we are trying to earn salvation, because we are following the path of slavery, but because we are your sons and your daughters and we delight to walk in the ways of our Father. We delight to do that which delights you. We pray that you would speak to us now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. We'll read down through verse 10. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. No one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul picks up on this famous metaphor of light and darkness, which is woven throughout the whole of Scripture, and he makes use of it once more. He is saying there is a difference between the people of God and the ways of the world. It gets us right back to kind of that map we made of Ephesians, right? The two halves, doctrine and devotion. And you remember the dark doctrine. He said, you, you used to be dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. And he did that because he wanted to. Because he chose you before the foundation of the world to be adopted in Christ. 
into the family of God together with all the other people who would ever repent of sins and believe in Jesus. God has done that. He has made us, who call ourselves Christians, alive. By His grace, we have been saved. Indeed, He is sovereign in our salvation. And therefore, and this gets us to the second half, that's the doctrine, this is the devotion, chapters 4 through 6, therefore we want to live in light of that truth. In light of the truth that we are no longer darkness, but light. Did you catch that? Look at, look at verse 8. It says, don't become partners with them. That's the sons of disobedience, those who might deceive you. Don't become partners with those who walk in the ways of darkness, in the way of death, in the way of sin. Don't become partners with them. Even if they're confessing that they're Christians and they think that they can continue to sin, don't be partners with them because, verse 8, this is the grounding, at one time you were in darkness, but now you were in light in the Lord. That's not what it says, is it? Do you notice that? It's not that you were in darkness or in light. At one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. That's really interesting. See, Paul is saying your problem prior to knowing Jesus wasn't that you did dark things or that you sinned. Your problem was that you are a sinner. Your problem was that you were darkness. But now, because of what God has done, by giving you faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, because of what God has done in the gospel for you, you are light. And there he comes to that command. Walk as children of the light. And we can see kind of the framing here is what you do flows out of what you are. Right? We're, not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And when we are united to Christ, we don't do good things or bear the fruit of righteousness because we're really, really good. But because God has united us with Christ and given to us His Holy Spirit through whom we are able to obey His Word. We are to walk as children of the light. And before we get to what that means, right? we've said there are two specific things here, right? to bear the fruit of the light and to expose the works of darkness. I think it's important to set um, walk as children of the light inside of the frame of, of God's holiness. The, the light metaphor, holiness, is, is kind of central to it. And walking as children of the light is a very poetic way of saying, be like God. Be holy as God is holy. This is what you were reconciled to God for. This is what you are made for, right? If we go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 3 again, we read, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that, here's the reason, we should be holy 
and blameless before Him. And so the call to walk as children of the light is a call to walk in godliness. It's a call to be holy. So what does that mean? When we talk about God's holiness, we are referring to His uniqueness, His other-than-ness. He is separate from His creation. We are creatures. He's distinct from us. We also refer to His power and his, His purity specifically his moral purity. Maybe it can help you to think about it like the sun in our solar system. Right? In our solar system, the sun is at the center of everything. Everything revolves around it. It is the sun that gives life to our planet and light. And the sun, if you get, if you get too close to it, it burns you up because it's pure heat and light. See, likewise, God is at the center of everything. He is unique, not just in a solar system, but in everything that's ever existed. He stands apart as unique from it. He is distinct. Indeed, he is powerful. He has the power of life and death in his hands. And he is morally pure. He is entirely good. Goodness is defined by whether or not it conforms to who God is. God is the definition of goodness. And so when we talk about what it means for the church to walk as children of the light or to to be holy, we're talking about what it means for us to reflect God's holiness. And so the church is to live distinct from the world. As distinct as, say, light is from darkness. We're to be distinct from the world. We're to be a demonstration of God's power to raise people from the dead by way of our transformed lives. We're to represent God's purity by doing our best to live lives that are morally pure. Instead of pick up on the you know, astrological analogy, God, God is kind of the sun and we, the church, are kind of to perform a moon-like function, right? We're we're to reflect what God is like to the world. We are light in God. We are to be holy. So that when the world wants to know what God looks like, what they ought to be able to do is to look at the church. Mark Dever writes, How do you see the invisible God? By looking at the local Christian congregation. How did we come to that answer? Follow me for a minute. When our first parents in the Garden of Eden sinned, human beings lost sight of God. He placed us under his curse. We became exiles. Since then, a few people have been given some kind of partial vision of God, such as Moses received. And eventually came Christ, who told Thomas, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Who Paul tells us in Colossians is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the clearest picture of the invisible God to us in the world. But Jesus is no longer visible, at least in the sense that 
that you and I are. He's not open to inspection by the physical eye. And yet, one of the most common images we find for the local church is that of the body of Christ. It is in the church that God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, rules and reigns and is made visible in the lives of love that we live. We are to walk as children of the light. We are to live as the body of Christ so that those who do not know God can look at us, can look at the church and go, that's what God is like. We're to live in such a way that our brothers and sisters in Christ that gather together each week with us here, we can look at one another, we can look at our relationships and go, this is what God is like. Friends, the reality of God's holiness, of His justice, and of His love ought to be evident in our interpersonal relationships with one another. We want to continually be proclaiming the truth that God is holy and just and so he punishes sin. That we are sinners in need of a savior. And that through Jesus Christ, we have that savior. That Jesus takes the wrath of God earned by you in me so that we might have his blessings by faith. Jesus dies so that we might live. Jesus went into the darkness of the grave so that we could be the light of God and have the hope of resurrection. Jesus lives. We are called to live in the newness of life. Friends, the church is a display of God's glory. It shows the world and us what God is like. And if you, if you have trouble kind of grabbing hold of this really grand picture of what the church is, for a variety of reasons, but I think, I think one of them, Christian, is that you, you haven't really given yourself up to belonging to a local church. That maybe you come week after week and you consume and you say your hellos and then you, you go on about your life and you go, okay, the church is just, it's on the same level as a social club or, or something or other like that. But the reality is, it's so much more. The church we read in Ephesians 3.10 is how God displays his manifold, his multicolored wisdom to the hosts that inhabit unseen realms church, Ephesians tells us, is who Jesus died for. And so I want to challenge you to, to come and to be invested. Invest in one another. Form relationships that challenge you, make you uncomfortable. Talk about the sermon with one another during the week. Pray for one another. We, we want the work of God in us to be evident, not just on Sunday morning, but on each day. In our relationships and in our families. 
we are to walk as children of the light. Bearing the fruit of the light. You see in verse 7, actually verse 9, my bad. Walk as children of the light. For, verse 9, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We'll talk more about discerning what is pleasing to the Lord next week as the the theme rises up again. But, But at bottom, it means studying God's word together in community and discerning what is going to honor God according to how he's revealed himself. We also see that the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Living in accord with the word of God, bearing that fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? The fruit of the light and the fruit of the Holy Spirit are not two different things here. It's, it's one thing that Paul's speaking about with different language. Right, So we, we are called to bear out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things will identify us as the people of God. Jesus says a tree is known by its fruit, right? You, you bear good fruit or um, the fruit of the light, it's a good tree. Uh, you bear bad fruit or the fruit of darkness, it's, it's a dying tree, a decaying tree. What you are is born out in how you live. The question for us is, are we darkness or are we light? Have we put our faith in Christ? Are we following him or not? And Jesus tells a, it's not, it was a, not him telling a story, but there's an interaction with Jesus in John 8 where he has disciples, air quotes, that, that believe in him that he rebuffs by telling them that they actually don't belong to God but to the father of lies and look with me at John 8 and in verse 31 John 8 and verse 31 Jesus says if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now... You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This isn't what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. 
They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. That's a shot at Jesus, by the way. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so here we have Jesus, not exactly meek and mild, saying to those who are saying, we, we believe in you, we're following you. He's telling them, no, you are not my disciples. If you were my disciples, you would do what my word says. It says later in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey me. He says, but that's not what you're doing. You're doing the works of your father. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, Jesus isn't actually claiming that they descended biologically from the devil here, right? It's made clear they biologically descended from Abraham. But sonship in the Bible isn't, isn't just about DNA. It's not like a, you know, we get on what, 23andMe or Ancestry.com and can figure out all these different things that, you know, make up your past. The Bible's perspective is broader. Sonship has to do with both, yes, biology, but also work, what you do. Because in a world prior to the Industrial Revolution and the advent of the modern job market, guess what you did? What your father did. So, if your father was a, a cobbler, guess what you grew up to be? Cobbler. If he was a farmer, you would become a farmer. And on down the line. And so you can see that sonship is kind of a functional category as well. It has to do with what you do. So elsewhere in Scripture, we'll, we'll see, um, I don't know if it's slander, but the phrase son of Belial, which means son of worthlessness. People will be called sons of worthlessness. And it's not as if their parents are Mr. and Mrs. Worthless, right? The point is that they live like worthless men. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 8. He's saying, you live like your father, the devil, the father of lies. And you are not of me because you do not do what my word says. You see, Paul is saying the same thing here in Ephesians 5. He's calling the Christians there to live like what they are, to become who they are, to live like light. And his point is, ultimately, you are going to behave as children of the light because you are light and you belong to God, or you are going to behave like the sons of disobedience because you are still in darkness. And so I think a good question for us, diagnostically, is to ask ourselves, 
Who do I live like? You know that old phrase, like father, like son. If someone were to look at my life, would they go, this is someone who is godly? And assuming they were using a, a fair and biblical critique. <laughs> who is your father? The father of lies or the father of love and life and light? We are to walk as children of the light. We're to be what we are in Christ. And we're also to expose the works of darkness. Quickly here, I was going to not do this, but changed my mind. I think it's important to make plain the distinction between justification and sanctification. Don't be intimidated by those words. Uh, justification means that God has legally, forensically, declared us to be right with him on the basis of what Jesus has done. That doesn't mean that we are perfect right now. It means legally, positionally, God views us as righteous. With me? Sanctification, on the other hand, says we are becoming, in practice, what God has declared us in Christ. So he's declared us righteous over here. He's declared us holy. And now we're learning to become that in practice. We're becoming what we are. With me? And so one, our justification, is entirely dependent on God. God does it all. We don't have any part to play in that. But our sanctification, the other side of the coin, we actually have a role to play. We participate together with God's Holy Spirit to grow up in godliness and Christ-likeness. His Holy Spirit fuels us onto good deeds and love. And so it's important we keep this straight so we don't look at these, the devotional aspects of Christianity and say, well, this is how I make myself right with God. Remember, chapters 4 through 6 are not telling us how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are. We're stepping into our sonship, our daughtership. We're becoming in practice what we've been declared in Christ. And so part of that is bearing that fruit of the light and exposing the works of darkness. Let's look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 12 there can strike us as a little odd. It's shameful to speak even of the things they do in secret. It seems immediately to refer to the kind of pornographic immorality that Paul was referencing in the first part of the chapter. I think it's shameful to even speak of these sins. And he doesn't mean that we can never talk about anything that is sexually immoral. I mean, he's just done it right here, right? What he means to say is that we need to avoid a culture of talking about sin that normalizes, dignifies, and excuses it. That is flippant about it. I'm not ruling out serious and sober and important conversation about such things. 
And really, he wants to, to demonstrate for us that if it's shameful to talk about such sins and all sins in general, if it's a shameful thing to even talk about it, how much worse is it to actually participate in those sins? This is him calling the believers towards holiness, warning them about just how venomous and poisonous sin is. Saying, don't go that way. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. No part. What does this word mean? He says, don't take a part, but instead expose the works of darkness. What does this word expose mean? I think it's important. It's used a variety of ways throughout Scripture. Here, I think it's best to render it, to understand it to mean convince, persuade, correct, or judge. Honer comments, The root idea is that of confronting somebody or something with the aim of showing him or it to be in some detriment respect at fault. The word means, the way we're, I've understood it, is to correct. And so the next question, you go, well, who are we exposing or correcting here? Well, I guess the, the sons of disobedience. So we have to ask ourselves, who, who is in this category, sons of disobedience? And there are actually two kinds of people. The first are those who don't know God, who are far from him, who have nothing to do with the church. And I don't think that's who Paul was talking about here. I'll get back to that in a second. The second group would be those who confess Christ with their mouth, but have hearts that are far from him. They say, I believe in Jesus, but while I identify as a Christian, I can actually still live however I want. I can still have my sin. And so, we remember last week we talked about 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, don't judge those outside of the church. Remember, I told you to have nothing to do with the sexually immoral, and I didn't mean those people that are out there in the world. Interact with them, love them, be friends with them. What I meant was those who are in the church. You don't need to judge outsiders. God will take care of all of that. You are called to judge insiders. Then he says, purge the evil person from among you. And so when he's calling us to correct sin, I don't think he's calling us to correct those who live in the ways of the world. And he's calling us to correct those who are bearing the name of brother, who are considering themselves Christians, but are living in unrepentant sin. So that it might could be said of them that they are sons of disobedience. It is really interesting, you look at verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's possible that the outside world could deceive us with empty words, is it not? But it's also possible that those who would call themselves Christians would deceive us with empty words. And so Paul here is summoning us to correct one another in love. If you remember back in Ephesians 4 and verse 25, you remember, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor because we are members of one another so that what affects one part of the body of Christ affects the whole. And so part of speaking the truth in love is correcting sin, 
calling one another to walk as children of the light. That kind of helps us make sense of verse 14. Which oftentimes, and I was prone to read it this way too, is, is read in light of, well, this is someone coming to Christ for the first time. But I actually think it refers to a, a believer or a wayward believer who is repenting probably for the hundred and first time. It says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. And the idea is walking out of darkness and into the light. Of waking up from sleep, interestingly, where do you sleep? In the dark. And enjoying the light, the new mercies of Christ. It's very similar to what we read in our scripture reading this morning. So awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. And our scripture reading came from Romans 13 and verses 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time, talking to Christians, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Friends, sharing our lives together with other Christians will helpfully expose the areas that we are living in the dark and help us to learn how to live in the light. For whatever reason, we are often the very last to recognize our own sinful behaviors or patterns of thinking. We need people to wake us up to that reality. Perhaps the most famous example comes from the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And on the heels of him not going out to war as he was supposed to, abusing his authority by bringing the wife of another man into the castle, participating in a sexual encounter with her, then murdering her husband to cover it up. So after all that's happened, David thinks he's all right. And so God sends to him the prophet Nathan, who says this, 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. He says to David, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, that used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But the rich man took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. David was asleep to his own sin, and he needed a brother to wake him up to the reality. The story goes on and, and David confesses his sin and Nathan says, the Lord has put your sin away. 
And isn't that a wonderful picture of all of us? All of us have sinned against God and sinned against Him again and again and again. And when we come to Him with repentant faith, He forgives again and again and again. He's happy to put our sins away. And He can't just do that and be God because He's holy, remember? He's just. He can't just sweep the sins of the cosmos under the rug. No, sin must be paid for. And for us, for the church, for all who cry out to Jesus in faith, the penalty was paid with the precious blood of Christ. We need to remind one another of this wonderful truth. That yes, we've been declared right with God. We are sons of the living God, children of God. And we need to live as children of the light. When we step out of the light and into the darkness, we need someone to reach out and grab us by the scruff of the neck and to pull us back in. This is what correction or or church discipline is all about. It's about protecting the individual and protecting the reputation of God. Because remember, when the world looks at the church, they are to see what God is like. And so we are called to lovingly Speak the truth to one another. To expose those deeds of darkness so that the sleepers among us might wake up. Correction really is vital to a healthy church. Correction allows us to shine light on the ugliness of sin and expose just how evil and heinous it is. Sin like cancer loves to hide. And discipline exposes the cancer so that it might be cut out quickly. Correction helps us to rescue the person who is sleepwalking in darkness. To bring them back in the light. It warns us that because of these things, the wrath of God comes. It pleads with the confessing Christian to return to Christ. To become a real Christian live in light of the fact that they have been made light. See, church discipline or correction is about love for the person. Correction also keeps sin from spreading throughout the congregation. Keeps it from becoming like yeast working its way through a loaf or kudzu working its way through a garden. It exposes it and says this is not acceptable. It needs to be uprooted from our lives. Correction Church discipline is about love for the church. Church discipline is also about presenting a good witness for Jesus. It helps non-Christians and Christians see an accurate portrait of what God is like. Correction enables us to ensure that the church is holy, distinct from the world, and filled with light rather than darkness. See, church discipline is about love for the world. Correcting one another's sin is an act of obedience. Obeying God's word always brings long-term blessing. It might be really hard in the short term or not make any sense to us based on our wisdom and our calculations. I think oftentimes when we go through the process of church discipline and someone refuses to repent and we, we ultimately end up disfellowshipping them, as in verse 7, right? Do not be partners with them. We say that we can't affirm their Christianity anymore. We, we want you to join us on Sunday mornings and to, we want to be your friend and 
and show you the way of Christ, but we can't count you as a Christian anymore. People get really uncomfortable with that. They go, well, if, you, if we do that, then they're never going to come back and they're never going to find Jesus. And so we can't do it. But Jesus says to you, if you love me, you will obey me. And our responsibility isn't to try to figure out what will be most winsome or most beneficial to the church. God has told us what will be most beneficial to the church. Obedience to his word. We mustn't trust our feelings in these regards. We must trust what God has said. We don't need to ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? Which is endlessly subjective. It can be helpful, I get it. But it's subjective. You go, well, I feel like Jesus might do this. The question isn't, what would Jesus do? But what does God's word say? And then we can submit ourselves to that. Friends, church discipline is about love for God. Correction is about love for the person, love for the church, love for the world, and ultimately, love for God. For homework today, uh, you can see what the Bible says about these things in 1 Corinthians 5 and in in Matthew 18. We've got sermons online that correspond to it if you're interested. Correction is vital. It's vital to health. The health of a local church. In the same way, it's vital to the health of a child. And so we want to make sure that we are lovingly and kindly correcting one another when that's necessary. And we also want to make sure that when we're on the other end of it, that we receive correction with humility. So one last question before we close. How will you receive correction? I think there are two options. You can receive correction as cockroaches, or as children. I mean, maybe you're lucky enough to have never come across a cockroach in your life. Um, I'm not. And you know, but you know what happens if you have them, and you walk into a room, it's typically dark, and you flip on the light, and you just hear their little feet. You see some of them, maybe you just catch a glimpse in the corner of your eye, darting for those dark corners. And you know what they do in those dark corners? Multiply multiply. You can respond to correction like a cockroach. The light comes to expose your sin and you flee from it into the darkness. Or your sin will multiply. Or you can respond like children of the light. Repent. And once more, rejoice in the wonderful truth that because of Jesus, you can be forgiven. Because of Jesus, you can have life together with God. Because of Jesus, you are no longer darkness, but you are light. Brothers and sisters, walk as children of the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your kindness to us, your grace and your mercy. Thank you that it challenges us and changes us and shapes us. And we pray that as we study it together in community, that um, you would help us to see accurately what it is you would say to us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus. Expand our capacities for love so that we might know you more. 
God, grow this small mustard seed faith of a church up so that we flourish and bring you honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.